you have your Bible, let's open it to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And if you need a Bible this morning, simply slip up your hand. Uh, these gentlemen would love to put a Bible in your hand so you can follow along with your eyes as well as your ears. We're going to be reading congregationally in chapter 2, uh, verses 16 and 17. Then I'm going to back us up and take us through the chapter as is our routine. But uh, could I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word? <clears throat> Let's read verse 16 and 17 together, congregationally, out loud. Chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and work. Good word and work. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word as well. As we have given you much thanks this morning for your grace and the work of your spirit. And so now, Lord, teach us. Open up our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Grant us understanding and wisdom. And all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so the subject of this chapter and this morning's study is the day, the man, the lie, and the truth. Each one of those subjects is uh, buried, not deep at all, right here in the second chapter of Second Thessalonians. I, I back us up this morning to verse 1 and 2 because it reminds us of the premise of not only of the letter, but the premise upon which Paul is writing. Drawing your attention to verse 1 and 2 when he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. As I've mentioned several weeks now, that the reason Paul wrote this second letter to the Thessalonian Christians was because of this very purpose. Uh, most scholars believe that he had this penned months, literally months after the first letter had been penned. And there had been Confusion in the Christian community at Thessalonica about the coming of the Lord. And Paul wanted to uh, set them aright. Rumors were even that a letter had circled that they had missed Christ's coming. And so the challenge in understanding this chapter really is met with the understanding that it is a supplement to what Paul had already 
uh, spoken to them and taught them, a lot of which is recorded in 1 Thessalonians, but we don't know everything that he said. Clearly, he did uh, write here, as we read, uh, about not only the coming of the Lord, but the gathering together to him. So it becomes clear that there is essentially two comings of the Lord Jesus Christ, one in which he comes for his church and a second in which he comes with his church. Now let's talk about the day uh, defined in Scripture. Uh, there is a preferred rendering in the accepted text that reads in verse 2, the day of the Lord, as opposed to the day of Christ. And the day of the Lord uh, was a very well-received and understood concept, particularly in the Old Testament. A few scriptures, if you're taking note this morning, Isaiah 13:6, wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Ezekiel 30, verse 3. For the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time, the time of the Gentiles. Joel, chapter 1, verse 15. Alas, for the day, the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Jeremiah 46.10 For this is the day of the Lord, God of hosts, a day of vengeance that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. In his first letter, the Apostle Paul mentioned the day of the Lord. In the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, verse 2, Paul wrote to them concerning the times and season, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So clearly, what we have is the fact that the, the day of the Lord in Scripture is not a single day event, but rather it is a period of time associated with two things. Number one, God's outpouring of judgment upon the earth, but also number two, God's deliverance of his people. Many of you who uh, have been walking with the Lord for a while, maybe reading your Bible all along the way, could be very familiar with many of the things that Jesus spoke of concerning that day in the Gospels. Matthew records for us a very classic chapter. The 24th chapter of Matthew uh, tells us that his disciples came to him and they asked him to tell them what would be the sign of his coming and the end of the age. Matthew chapter 24, verse 4, Jesus said, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ. And they will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, 
For these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famine, pestilence, earthquakes in various places, and all these things are the beginning of sorrow. He goes on to share with them in the latter portion of the 24th chapter of Matthew that it would be his coming would be as though in the days of Noah when people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, even up until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be, Jesus said. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know the hour that your Lord is coming. John, in his revelation of Jesus Christ, in the sixth chapter of that book, says, verse 15, the kings of the earth, great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in caves and in rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to stand? The day of the Lord. A promise of God's outpoured judgment and wrath upon the earth. One commentator says the grammar there in the first two chapters of 2 Thessalonians 2, the Greek grammar shows, quote, the government of two nouns under one article makes it clear that one event viewed under two complementary aspects. And that this is completely consistent with other passages of Scripture indicating these two aspects of the day of the Lord. One, his outpoured judgment and wrath. Two, the deliverance of his people. So clearly here in verse 2, the day of the Lord is a reference to the judgment of God upon the earth. And the Thessalonians were concerned that they had missed the gathering together unto the Lord before that judgment had come. Now it should be noted, in case you didn't know, that the church is promised to be taken away from that day of judgment. It is referred to in Scripture as the rapture. Some have argued that uh, the rapture cannot be true and cannot be biblical because the word rapture is not found in your Bible. That argument is true about the word rapture. But the word rapture is devised from the Latin rapturas, which means 
caught up and is clearly there in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be rapturas, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Can I hear an amen? In other places in 1 Thessalonians, this truth of the church being removed before the judgment of God is poured out is clear. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, if you're taking note. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. John, in his book, Revelation, writing to the faithful church of Philadelphia, Revelation 3.10, Jesus is speaking, John is the pen, the author is, of course, the Holy Spirit, and John writes that Jesus says to the faithful church, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. The word uh, out of or of is ek, which means out of, and is the promise again that God himself We'll take the church out of being here before his judgment is poured out. Now, Paul made it clear to these Thessalonian believers, you're worried that you've missed his coming. You're worried that you've not been gathered up to him and that his judgment is being, going to be poured out. He tells them in verse 3, if you'll follow with me, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So we move our attention away from the day and we now place it upon the man. Before the great tribulation can be identified with certainty, a particular person is to be revealed. Paul's point is clear here. You're worried about it, and you shouldn't be, but you can know, you, because you should know that you're, you've not missed his coming, and you're not in the great tribulation, because we have not seen the man of sin revealed. Now, what is uh, also... Uh, noteworthy and interesting is that uh, for many years up until um, more than likely this last century or even half a century that Protestant interpreters had seen quote the man to be the succession of popes Calvin was strong on this, and he writes, quote, 
Paul, however, is not speaking of one individual, but a kingdom that was to be seized by Satan for the purpose of setting up the seat of abomination in the midst of God's temple. And we see this accomplished in popery. That was Calvin's view. However, particularly I would say in the later half a century, with a clear understanding of um, proper exegesis from scripture, that there is no good reason to see this man anything other than an individual that's plainly spoken of. Uh, yes, great prominence in the last day. This was how the earliest church fathers saw it as a man. Uh, Daniel speaks of this person as being an individual. Jesus spoke of him as being an individual. And we read in verse 4 that he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or what is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Uh, now, what's to be observed by that is that this individual is truly the embodiment of Satan. He is an anti-Christ. And there are some things that are mirrored in that individual's ministry that, that actually you find, we find similar with Jesus. Both Jesus and the man of sin have a coming. Uh, both, uh, that's in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2, 9. Both Jesus and the man of sin are revealed, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 2, 3. Both Jesus and the man of sin have a, a message, a gospel, if you will, 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 and 11. And both the man of sin uh, both Jesus and the man of sin say that they alone should be worshipped, as we just read in 2.4. But the, the anchor here is that clearly only Christ is the one that can actually bring judgment upon the earth. The man of sin is not God at all. And we see in verse 5, something else that comes to our vision is that Paul says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. Isn't it interesting how quickly we can forget things, uh, not to be flippant about such a serious subject as, you know, the judgment of God and the day of judgment, but it is interesting how our brains cannot hold uh, too much information. We tend to forget things. The older we get, the more often we tend to forget things. Uh, it hadn't been long since Paul had been with them. And when you insert 
confusion, you insert rumor, you insert a uh, collage of different beliefs. The next thing you know, the individual is saying, well, what was it he said? Did he ask it? And that's why Paul's saying, don't you remember? I told you these things. And he says, and now you know, verse 6, what is restraining that he, and I want to point your attention to something, small h, he may be revealed in his own time. He's referring still to the man of sin, son of perdition. In verse 7, he goes on to say that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, capital H, who now restrains will do so until he, same individual, capital H, is taken out of the way. Small summary of those couple of verses is that the, the man of sin, the son of perdition, this embodiment of Satan who will arrive on the scene after the church has been taken out of the way, is being restrained right now. He is being held back from the plan to be revealed and exercise his, uh, as we'll read in a moment, signs and powers and wonders. And the way that he will be uh, revealed is when that restraint is removed. God has a timetable in which that's going to happen. Verse 6, he will be revealed in his own time. But in the interim, the thing that is restraining him, notice the personal pronoun in verse 7 mentioned twice, is a person. It's he. It is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, active in the church. Did you know that you, as a part of the body of Christ, are a restraining force to evil today? And you might say, but, but pastor, look how much evil is going on. I would say, yes, look at it. But can you imagine if the church wasn't here? The Holy Spirit in you, we're told that... We are the temple of God. Know you not that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 3.16. Jesus said to his followers, You are the salt of the earth. Matthew 5.13. He said that you are the light of the world. Matthew 5.14. God's presence living in you and I in the person of the Holy Spirit, is the restraining force keeping back this man of sin. Yes, God has a timetable. He will be revealed in his own time. But until that time, God has left his witness here. What a beautiful thing to realize that the body of Christ is a restraining force to evil. And yes, 
there is um, a phenomenal amount of evil that exists in the world today. Has since the beginning of humankind. And it rises and falls and rises and falls and, and takes on uh, many different horizons all the way from uh, the destruction of governments to the destruction of, of human life. The evil of abortion, the evil of the Holocaust. And yet the church, the spirit of God within his, the body of Christ, is still restraining. Can you imagine if every believer was removed from the planet? And then he says in verse 8, And then, The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So, Thessalonians, you're worried that you've missed his coming. You haven't because this one has not been revealed yet. He says in verse 9 that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So scripture reaffirms, Revelation 13, 13 as well reaffirms that this embodiment of Satan, whoever this person is, will have powers, will have signs, will have wonders. And just because uh, an individual can uh, demonstrate the miraculous... Signs, wonders, does not mean that the resource from which those miraculous things happening is coming from God. So the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, and you might want to underline that, among those who perish because... They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. The day, the man, we're talking about the lie and the truth. What we have here is the apostle writing to the Thessalonians, reminding them that When that day comes, again, let's review the the scenario. The church has been raptured. The witness of Christ upon the earth and those who are perishing are perishing because, as someone once said, God never sent anyone to hell. A person chooses hell by rejecting the truth of the gospel. And here, Paul now gives this, you know, end time chronology 
that those who perish, they are perishing because, notice the reason, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. What a subject, right? Truth. What a huge subject. Somehow in the mind and in the heart of God, he is planted in the consciousness of every human being the ability, the ability to know truth and the ability to receive it or reject it. The distinctive difference between those who perish and those who are saved clearly is that they did not receive the love of the truth. Now, uh, a quick Google search or a dictionary search will dis, uh, unearth this fact, right? That there is objective truth, there is subjective truth, and there's one more. Do you know what it is? Absolute truth. So there is absolute truth, there is objective truth, and there is subjective truth. Objective truth by definition, is a statement or a claim about a fact that can be proved true or false. Subjective truth is not based on fact, but rather is an expression of belief or opinion or preference. An example of objective truth, I found this interesting, uh, can be found in mathematics and uh, physical law. For instance, the speed of light in a vacuum travels at 299,792,458 meters per second. An objective response to that would be, the speed of light is unimportant to me. An example of objective truth would be, it's raining. An example of subjective truth would be, I like the rain. Why am I sharing this with you? I'll ask you the question. Is God's word, the Bible, Objective truth or subjective truth? Or is it absolute truth? This book that you and I hold, is it objective truth? Definition, a claim about a fact that can be proven true or false. Subjective truth, is this the word of God, a claim, not based on fact, but expression of belief, opinion, or preference. Oftentimes you find those who challenge the Bible. So how do you know that the Bible is true? It's just a book. Man, you know, put it together. You can't trust what man does. And yet, 
in some of the basics of, of early discipleship in the life of every Christian, you, each one of you this morning, including myself, should know the four reasons why the Bible is true. You know what they are? Four. Okay, first one is manuscript evidence. We have more collective manuscript evidence Writings that are dated back, further back, further back, further back. We have more manuscript evidence than we do of people like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, the great philosophers of the world. We have more manuscript evidence of the Bible than we do of of any other authors. Second reason the Bible is true. Know what it is? You should know it. It should be on our right on archaeology. When you read about places in Scripture, many of those places have been excavated and are true. They're there. We've dug down and found the evidence that the things recorded in Scripture have actually happened and are true. Third reason. Prophecy. Prophetic writings. Of God says he, that he knows the beginning from the end and he speaks things into existence before they even are. The Bible is filled with prophetic truths of things that have come to be. One of which, we're living in a generation and in a time which we have seen the promise of Israel being restored. No other people, no other nation has ever been wiped off the face of the earth and then come back. Prophecy is the third evidence of the truth of Scripture. And finally, finally, the personal testimony of those who gave their life on the basis of the truth of the gospel died. We have not only the record of those, but those who have followed them and whose shoulders they stand upon. Jesus, in speaking, of course, with his disciples, he said, if you love me, you keep my commandment, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he... The Holy Spirit may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus said that the world can't receive the Spirit of truth because it, the world, neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then, of course, in the book of Acts, we have the promise of the coming upon of the Holy Spirit, a baptism in the Spirit of God. Jesus said in John 17, I do not pray that you would take them out of the world, as in that classic prayer to the Father, Jesus says. Don't take those who follow me out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. 
your word is truth. It's, it's neither objective or subjective. It's absolute. Cannot be changed. In his conversation with Pilate, Pilate said to him, are you a king? He, Jesus said, you say rightly. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he told the crowd asking to crucify him, I find no fault in him. Everyone who hears my voice, he says, is of the truth. Can you hear the voice of Christ this morning? Can you hear the voice of God? You who are watching at home, I'll invite you into this conversation. Can you hear Jesus speaking? To receive the love of the truth is the distinguishing difference between those who perish and those who are saved. The day is coming. The man will be revealed. The truth of God, the absolute truth of God, that hold up under both objectivity and subjectivity to receive the love of that truth. And some will not. Do you know someone this morning who refuses to receive that truth? It spins and circles all around their life path. And yet their hand is up, their ears closed. Their heart is cold and their understanding darkened. What a sad thing. What a horrible thing. And I, maybe you can think back to a time when you felt or believed the same way about these various Christianese truths that you were hearing. And God, by his grace, pressed through your and my evil and wicked heart and revealed himself to you and you, you broke and submitted and said, God, I believe, forgive me, I'm a sinner, I need your saving grace. But there are still those that just, the hand is out, the ears are shut, the heart is cold. It's their choice. And God says, as we wind this up this morning, in verse 11, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. They won't receive the love of the truth, so therefore, delusion is sent and they believe the lie. What lie? The lie that God is unneeded. What lie? The lie that there's only one way unto the Father. What lie? They won't, they'll believe that there's multiple ways to the Father. They'll believe that there's not only one way to God. Some will, in fact, embrace that there's no need for God at all, no God. 
We've looked at societies in the past that have removed God from the society. Marxism, communism, no God. Just produce. It's all about the people. And yet, don't we find that same lie all the way back at the beginning of humankind when Satan himself in the form of that serpent whispers, has God really said? Paul tells the Thessalonians in verse 12 that that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And clearly, if you were a Thessalonian, or as we are Christians this morning, we go, oh my God, there will be those. Not all are going to heaven. And he says, but, in verse 13, the redeeming of this truth, he says, but, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, speaking to the Christian in Thessalonica, the Spirit of God speaking to you and me this morning. Always bound to give thanks uh, to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. He knew before you were born and I was born that you would believe the message of the gospel and that you would and I would bend our knee to the, the, the reality that we are separated from God by our sin and that only the shed blood of Jesus Christ can redeem us. Works cannot redeem us. Philosophy cannot redeem us. Church attendance cannot redeem us. Activity in Christian things cannot purchase us back. One purchasing element alone, the precious blood of Christ. You believed it and I believe it. To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, I'm telling you all of this, Thessalonians. I'm telling you all of this, O Church of Valley Springs. Therefore, verse 15, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or epistle. And may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us the everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. The day is coming. The man will be revealed. The truth is that he is being restrained by the person of the Holy Spirit active in the body of Christ. The lie is that there is no God and no need for God. Aren't you grateful this morning that you believe the truth? Aren't you thankful this morning that when that day comes, he has promised we'll be gone? 
Aren't you grateful this morning that that man of sin will have an impact on a world to which you and I won't be here? How much greater the emphasis becomes for us to share that there is a lie and there is the ability to reject the truth. Today, what will your choice be, right? With those we love, those that come across our path. Today, what is your choice? Will you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, as we consider your servant Paul's strong admonition, his exhortation that the Thessalonian church had not missed your coming, and his instruction about how to know when that has happened, Lord, it ignites in us a joy that we have come to the truth of the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It reminds us that we too were once lost, but now have been found. And perhaps even it encourages us, Lord, this morning to move forward in sharing the great love of God with others. And so, Lord, this morning, we take these words and we think about who we might share them with. And we ask you, O God, to have mercy on those that we... we know and that we love. Help us, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name.